Well, good afternoon, everybody, and can I say Happy New Year to you all? Um, this is the first of my Gresham lectures on um, 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 the making of the modern and future world for this uh, particular calendar year, um, and um, I'm going to be delivering uh, four lectures this calendar year uh, in this series. So, courtesy um, of Great Western Railways, but only just. Here I am. Uh, only just. <laughs> um, and I'm going to tell you today about the mathematics of information and how information is transmitted from one place to another, um, either through electronic means or at the end of the lecture, I'm going to talk about how it's transmitted genetically. Hence the title, Maths is Coded in Your Genes. So the sort of maths that goes into one of these things, which most of you have, hopefully turned off for the lecture, um, how one of these transmits information from you to Australia, or whether you're um, wanting to talk to. Maths is coded in your genes. So I think it's reasonable to say that the 21st century is the age of information. So we live in a world full of information. There's far more information going on in the world now than there was even only 10 years or 50 years ago. And here are some of the types of information that um, happen. Um, so even when we shop, we convey information through barcodes. Um, here's a CD. We'll be talking later on in this lecture about how information is put onto CDs. Uh, most information now involves a route which might involve some sort of satellite. Um, until not so long ago, information was conveyed through Morse code. Um, here's the iPod. And just about, we can remember if we think really hard, these things here. I had an experience with my student, one of my students recently. Um, they, they came to me with a problem, and I said, well, why don't you look it up in this book? And he looked at me and said, but what website's that on? <laughs> anyway. OK. Um, and it's essential, if we have information, that we send this information um, accurately from one point to another. And we can almost think of human civilization as... Um, being sort of stimulated, sparked off, and then developing by the fact that we can convey information from one person to another. So the great change in the um, human state came with the invention of language. Um, I'm not going to try to put a figure on when language was invented. Of course, you can't uh, see that in the, in the fossil record. Um, but language is still the primary thing that we use to communicate, and, of course, what makes us fundamentally different um, from other animals. And here is an eminent mathematician, otherwise known as Stokes, at the Bath Taps Into Science Festival, communicating some mathematics to these uh, interested young people over there. Now, language is great, but it's prone to error. If you talk to anyone, it's, it's quite easy to make mistakes, and in particular, if you're conveying information from one generation to the next over many years or maybe hundreds of years, um, language can change 
and the meaning of language can change and it can lead to error. So the next big advance or revolution in information and how that was conveyed was the invention of writing. Now, we can be a bit more uh, uh, precise about when writing started because written records uh, last. Um, it's generally reckoned to be about three, maybe three to 4,000 uh, years old um, that writing was invented. And the um, uh, um, bits of writing that we can sort of see now um, are the cuneiform tablets, which were um, produced in Mesopotamia um, by pressing uh, a stylus into clay, and this um, has survived over uh, several thousands of years. It's an interesting fact that although we store all our um, information electronically nowadays, the format for that will have changed in 10 years, and it probably won't be readable anymore, whereas these things are still going strong 3,000 years later. So that's not bad technology. Um, and this actually comes from the British Museum, and it's a bit of mathematics um, is being recorded on this tablet. So writing was great. With writing, you could put things in a way that it could go from one generation to the next, and people could look at it. But it was still a very slow process of conveying information. You had to uh, carefully uh, transfer one, a copy of one document from to another, and it was still relatively easy to make errors in that process, and it took a long time. So the next huge change um, in um, the process of communication came with the invention of the printing press by uh, uh, Gutenberg and then Caxton in the UK um, in the 15th century. So with the printing press, you now have the uh, two advantages. Firstly, that you can reproduce a large number of written texts very, very quickly. Once you set up the press, you can do it quickly, one after the other. And the second big advantage of the printing press was that communication was, to a large extent, error-free. Okay? It was fast and it was error-free. So it was two huge advantages over the original written um, uh, using just ordinary writing. So, and of course, the printing press sparked the uh, modern world. Um, it led to the, the Renaissance and the Reformation, and all sorts of things happened directly because, um, because um, ideas could be very rapidly transferred from one person to another over long distances um, without error. Nowadays, um, information is almost entirely conveyed by electronic means. And the next revolution was in the uh, 1900s, um, when the telegraph was invented and Samuel Morse invented Morse code so that information could be sent as a series of pulses down a wire. And in this lecture, I'll come back to the sort of ideas that Samuel Morse put in into coming up with that code so that information could be transmitted in a reasonably error-free way. And now um, it is routine to convey terabytes, that's huge, you know, billions and billions of bytes of information very rapidly and very reliably all the way around the world um, using a satellite. As I said, if I want to talk to my aunt in Canada, I just press a few buttons on here and I can talk to her as though she was right next to me. 
and that uses an enormous amount of technology to turn my voice into something which can be transmitted over the airwaves off a satellite and back down again um, to me as clear as possible. Okay, so um, let's now talk about some of the ideas that this process of conveying information electronically um, has generated or the ideas that we need to make it happen. So a little bit of notation. We're going to be talking about information, that is the sense of what I want to be conveyed, um, which is then conveyed by a signal. In this case, I am thinking of this lecture. That's going into a signal, which is the sound waves that are coming out of my mouth. Um, that is then goes through a channel. Um, in this case, it's the air between my mouth and your ear, and then through your ear into your brain. Um, and hopefully, you will then receive what you're hearing and be able to make some sort of sense about what I am saying. Okay, we hope. Okay, so that's the basic idea. Um, and of course, an enormous amount of processing is going on in my brain and then in my voice and then through the sound waves and then hearing to make that possible. Um, but I'm going to sort of summarize that with saying that the um, archetypal transmitter is always called Alice um, or A, um, which goes through a, a, a channel. Um, which might be very long and, say, involves a satellite, um, to be received at the other end by Bob or B. And we're going to talk about this process of how this information goes through the channel and how Alice can put um, sense into what she says so that regardless, essentially, of what the channel does to it, Bob can still receive that information and make sense of it when he gets it at the other end. And the reason this is needed is that channels typically distort things as we go. There's no such thing as a perfect medium. There's always going to be some errors that are made in the process of transmission. We know this only too well when we talk to people. It's very easy to misunderstand them. Um, and the question is, if you get sort of distortion on the channel, can we still recover the information at the end of the day? So this is the sort of thing that might happen. Here's Alice that sends a signal, which I shall call U. Uh, Bob receives some version of that signal we call V. Um, and there might be a direct path from Alice to Bob. Um, but on the way, someone turns on their hairdryer, and that creates noise, so you get sort of uh, a fuzziness of that signal. Um, another part of the signal might uh, go in a different direction, bounce off a house, come back to Bob and on the way gets interfered with some other noise, um, in this case some lightning, um, and here's just another signal. So Bob has to deal with three signals that arrive that have gone through different paths and have been distorted on the way and also get corrupted by random noise like a hairdryer. Okay. Now my next slide's a little bit scary, so brace yourselves. Uh, it's the scariest slide of the lot, so here we go. Uh, what does Bob receive from Alice? Well, that's the picture of what's going on. As a mathematician, I like to think of that mathematically, and that's the maths behind it. That's what I have to deal with. That is the scariest bit of the whole lecture, so we might as well get it out of the way right now. Um, but I'll just unpack the maths a bit. Um, U is what Alice sends. V is what Bob receives. The assumption here 
is that the signal has gone through um, a large number of different paths on the way from Alice to Bob, bouncing off the different houses, off different satellites, um, and there'll be n of these paths. So there may, may be many, many paths, hundreds of paths. Um, on the way, it gets corrupted by the channel. This process here is known to mathematicians as convolution. It's a very well understood process, um, but I won't go into the details. And then you get um, something else added on. This is the hairdryer, the noise that gets on, added on to any signal. As I say, that's the, that's the scariest bit of maths we're going to have. I'm not going to really go back to that formula at all, but just to say that's, as a mathematician, how I see this process going. And my question is, if I know V, can I work out what U is um, from the information that I receive? Um, and this is the sort of thing that might happen. Um, that might be the, signal I, uh, the sort of signal I want to send. Um, that's what happens to the signal when it gets bounced off the houses, and then it adds it all together. I get this mess here, and some, somewhere from there, I've got to get back to the original. That is the problem that I face, um, and I face professionally in my work uh, every day. Okay, so as I say, that's the scariest slide of the lot. You can relax now. It won't be quite so bad. Um, so... As I said, the process of conveying um, information from one place to another um, is twofold. You take the information that you want to send, you put it onto a signal, and then you send that signal um, through the channel. How is that information encoded? Well, until recently, most information was encoded in what we call an analog signal. Now, I imagine many of you, um, perhaps even most of you, or maybe even all of you, used to have an analogue television. An analogue television. And then a few years ago, you had to go through the inconvenience of converting to digital. And you thought, why am I going through all this inconvenience? Is, is it worth it? Um, many of you may have had, or still have, a, a record player. Here's a rather splendid one I found on the internet. Um, and analogue TVs and record players convey information through an analogue signal, which is something which takes a continuous range of values. Now, my voice is a very good example of an analogue signal. I can vary the pitch, I can vary the frequency, I can vary the timing, all continuously over a wide range uh, of values. And that's what a typical analogue signal looks like. And analog signals are great, so they're very natural, but they're subject to distortion. It's very easy for, um, if I speak to you, um, for the, the sound that you hear to be different from the one that I'm saying, because it might have got softer as it goes towards the hall, or there might be echoes, all sorts of things like that. And it was gradually realised through the 20th century um, um, that there was a better way of transmitting information which was, instead of transmitting it through a continuous range of values, to use a discrete um, set of values. Um, and that is called digital communication. So digital communication, where instead of a continuous range, you have a discrete set of, of values, is almost universally what's used. Now, one way to think about the difference between analog and digital is the difference between going into a tailor's and asking for a fitted suit, where they measure you up and produce a suit to exactly fit you, 
or going into tailors and saying, can I have a medium, please? Or a size 6 or a size 7 or whatever, whatever your sizes are. Most clothes are sold in discrete sizes. And that's basically okay because most of us um, are of sort of certain types of shape. Um, I'm a medium, by the way. Um, so um, that's what's used in shirt sizes. And this idea of sending information in discrete chunks. So here I've uh, shown here how this analog signal is sent in sort of uh, chunks like this is, is now what is basically used in all communication. And I'll tell you why in a second. Um, and the reason I've called this lecture Maths is Coded in Your Genes is that it seems that nature has the same idea. Of course, nature had this idea a long time before we did it. Um, and genetics conveys information in discrete amounts through the, the genes that are transmitted from one generation to another. And that's what I'm going to come back to towards the end of this lecture. So digital communication is used very, very widely. And the reason it is used is it is far more reliable than analog communication. It's far less susceptible to the sort of errors that you get in transmission than analog is. So hopefully your digital radio will sound clearer and more precise than your analog one. Okay, um, and all modern technology pretty well, um, apart from, of course, vinyl discs, which are, I'm pleased to say, making a comeback, um, but apart from that wonderful medium, all modern information stores, all modern technology, including my mobile phone, stores its information digitally, whether that is texts or um, sound or pictures. That is all stored as a series of numbers in the memory of the device. Um, and that's a typical digital signal. That's a series of, of ones and zeros. Um, and that's essentially what's coming to you uh, through the um, digital TV signal. Uh, ones and zeros in a set of pulses. Um, and one basic reason that this is more reliable is if, an, if I think of an analog signal um, and you might have 0.6 or 0.7 or 0.3 as values of that, these can very easily be blurred into each other. Whereas a digital signal is typically a 1 or a 0. It's a question with a yes, no answer. So if I was to say, will Manchester City win the Premiership? Okay, the answer is yes or no. It's not... We don't know. Well, we don't know at this stage, but I mean, at the end of the Premiership, we will know that Manchester City has or hasn't won. It's, it's a definite thing. There's no intermediate range. Um, and why is that useful? Well, if I send a pulse, um, if Alice sends a pulse like this um, into uh, a wire, um, by the time it gets to Bob, that will be distorted, like something like this. But it has to be distorted quite a lot to not be recognisable as a pulse. Okay, a one has to be changed quite a lot before it looks like a zero. And so digital digits are much more reliable things to send down a wire or send through the um, ether from Alice to Bob or indeed to store in memory. And that's why digital communication is, is more reliable than analogue. 
for one reason. There's another reason which I'll talk about later when we talk about error-correcting codes. However, we don't live in a perfect world. Um, again, Alice might be talking to Bob and someone turns on their hairdryer and there's a lot of noise and that does distort the signal. Or you might have a CD and someone treads on the CD and scratches it and again corrupts the signal. Can we still recover the information that Alice wants to send to Bob even though these errors have been made um, changing ones to zeros? And this problem um, was studied, uh, well, it still is studied, uh, extensively by mathematicians, um, in particular just after the war when um, communication really kind of uh, got much bigger. Um, and the great hero of all of this was this guy. Um, if I was to put a picture up of a famous rock star, most people would know who that was. Um, this guy is the rock star of information. Uh, this guy called Claude Shannon, he um, made huge advances in virtually every aspect of modern information technology and very much could be regarded as one of the founders of the modern technological world, Claude Shannon. Um, he worked in, in Bell Laboratories, um, which is proof of the fact that not all good mathematics is done in universities. Uh, a lot of good mathematics is done in industry. Um, one reason I like to say that is that I used to work in industry as a mathematician. Um, so here's Claude Shannon, um, who was active both before, during, and after the Second World War. Um, and um, he'd been thinking about information for a long time, but 1948 was the seminal year in the story of information, he published a paper called A Mathematical Theory of Communication in the uh, technical journal of Bell System, Bell, Bell Labs. Um, and this is, you know, the uh, book of Genesis for us for inf in information technology. It's where it all started. Okay, if, en if any one bit of mathematics has led to the modern world, it's this paper here. Um, so... Here is how um, Shannon started his paper. The fundamental problem of communication is that of reproducing at one point, either exactly or approximately, that's kind of important, a message selected at another point. Okay, how well can we do this? Um, and the question he particularly asked in some detail was if you have a channel where people are turning hair dryers on at random, and producing lots of noise, or you've got a CD where things are being scratched, um, how much information can be transmitted? Um, and basically, he said, he, he came up with a theorem called Shannon's theorem, uh, which was extraordinary. He, he said that there was, um, for any channel, a maximum rate, rate at which you could send information. And if you sent information at a slower rate than that, you could get pretty well all of it through. And if you send it at a faster rate than that, you can get almost none of it through. There was a kind of what he called a special thing called the channel capacity, which if you transmit um, under the channel capacity, you can get virtually anything through, providing you are happy to wait long enough for that to happen. Okay. Um, if you're 
if you're impatient and want to go too quickly, you're going to make errors. Now, it's kind of common sense, I suppose, but he, he formulated this very carefully mathematically and said, if you design the way that you send your information carefully enough, it doesn't really matter if the, if the channel is noisy and is distorting that information, you can get it through, providing you do it carefully. And that's Shannon's theorem in a nutshell. I will omit the proof, but it's nice. An incredible um, statement. Um, it, it, it's sort of almost counterproductive. It, it's saying that I can get the information through regardless of what you're going to be doing to me on the way. Um, and if you type Shannon's theorem into Wikipedia, it has a whole article devoted to it. Um, and this is one of the things it says in the article. I've quoted it verbatim because I like it so much. Um, it's that Shannon's theorem impact has been crucial to the success of all these things, the voyage emissions to deep space, the invention of the compact disk, mobile phones, the internet, linguistics, human perception, black holes, and numerous other fields. That's not bad for a bit of mathematics, is it? Not bad at all. Um, and so that goes back to 1948. Shannon was lucky in a way because, he, well, maybe it's not lucky. I mean, things were in the air, as it were. But that theorem that he, he proved came at pretty well the same time as the development of the transistor, which also came through Bell Labs. Um, so not only did you have the theorem, you started having the technology and then the fast computers that could make use of it. And, and here we are um, in the modern world uh, as, as a result. So I'm going to come back to this um, um, and show you now how Shannon's theorem works and then how a version of it is used in, uh, I believe, in, in the, the genetics um, the, the way that genetics works. Okay, so how is digital communication done in practice? How does this all work? Well, although Shannon in 1948 uh, proved his theorem, um, one of the earlier technological breakthroughs is due to the great mathematician Leibniz, who was Newton's great rival um, in the development of calculus. Um, Leibniz came from Hanover um, in Germany. And in 1703, he either invented or discovered, depending on how you view mathematics, binary numbers. Um, so binary numbers are ways of representing uh, what were decimal numbers, the numbers we're used to, in base 2. So that you could represent a number using ones and zeros. Um, and here is the binary representation. Um, these, are, uh, that's, uh, uh, these are powers of 2 going from right to left. So that's 1, 2, 4, and 8 on the left. Um, and these are binary numbers which represent the numbers from 0 to 15. Um, this was, Leibniz did this as a bit of pure mathematics. Arguably, um, it was being done by the Chinese sometime before. And there's some, even some evidence that Leibniz knew about this. Um, and in the 19th century, it was uh, realised uh, by people like Ball and so on that these numbers were ideal for computations and for computational um, engines like the early computers and were also ideal for conveying information for this reason I said earlier that um, the difference between a 1 and a 0 is very big. It's much more likely to get through a noisy channel. So that was Leibniz's invention. Um, 
George Ball in 1854 uh, developed the um, ideas of Boolean algebra, which allowed you to do logic in a similar sort of way. Um, and then Shannon, if you remember him, uh, 1948 was his great breakthrough paper, but um, he was the first person to um, think that you could do binary electronically, and he wrote a paper on digital communication using relays. Relays were being used by the uh, post office at the time. Um, and all modern computers, as well as uh, representing information in binary, do the computations in binary, and this is a typical logic gate in a computer, which is a binary adder, which allows you to add two binary digits together. So these are kind of, this is all the technology that was being developed, re um, getting ready for the um, information revolution that we now have. Uh, so just to, yeah, um, quietly, I should have. Here's a joke. Just to show you how powerful uh, binary arithmetic is, I hope you didn't see the next slide, um, the joke is, question is, how does a monster count to 30? How can a monster count to 30? Okay, and the answer is, of course, on their fingers. Um, and I can count to 30 using the fingers of one hand. It's a good party trick, this. If that's the number zero, that's the number one, that's the number two, that's the number three. I'm, I'm counting in binary on one hand. That's the number four. If I do this in a school, I get a laugh at this point. Um, that's the number five, that's the number six, that's the number seven, and I can't do them after a while because I injured my hand. Um, but you can carry on with the fingers of one hand using binary count to 31. So if anyone asks you to count to 31 on the fingers of one hand, I've now shown you how to do it. Um, if you want a real party trick, you can count to 1,023 on the fingers of both hands. Um, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that 31 is my favourite number. Um, so, um, with just, you know, when you think you could count to five on a hand, you can count to much more, and that shows you that it's possible to store actually a lot of information in just numbers which are one or zero, like that. Um, in a computer, um, we typically uh, store information in groups of eight digits. Um, eight digits is called a byte, a single digit is called a bit, and with one byte, you can score two times two times two, eight times amounts of information, which is 256 different things. Um, when you buy a computer, you generally um, are told that it has memory <coughs> expressed in now gigabytes or maybe even terabytes. But the basic unit of computer memory is the byte. Um, the reason that a byte is used is that with 256, you can get all the letters of the alphabet, all the punctuation, um, all the numbers um, from 0 to um, 9, plus a whole load of other stuff as well. Um, and it's exploited in a thing called the ASCII code. So this is the ASCII code, the American symbolic code for instruction. And these are the binary equivalents of the numbers here, the letters, um, A, to Z in uppercase, the letters A to Z in lowercase, um, some punctuation, and a whole load, mo mo load more besides. Um, so with eight bits or one byte, um, you can store um, the Roman alphabet. 
Um, modern computers um, often work with um, more than that. They might work with 32-bit or 4 bytes. Um, and the reason for that is this is kind of the stuff that modern computers want to store. Um, they don't want to just store uh, ordinary letters. They want to store interesting Chinese letters or Japanese letters or um, smiley faces and things like that. Um, and with 32 bits, um, you have 2 to 32, which is um, something like a, a, a 4,000 um, different possible characters that you can store, which is essentially more than enough for um, most modern communication. So you can store a lot of information with binary, and then um, if you want to send a letter, for example, uh, if you want to send the, 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 the word Gresham, you, you do 10110111, uh, and then 0111010, and then uh, 0110010. It gets a bit boring after a while, but you get the idea that that's how the word Gresham would be sent, and um, because it's in binary, it's relatively free from error. Okay. Now, to say relatively is a, uh, well, many, most um, communication will be free of error, but there are always going to be errors. Um, and if you make errors, it's very, very important that you know that an error has been made. Um, there's a very famous quote, I uh, can't quite remember who said it, but someone said the problem with um, this piece of science was that it wasn't even wrong. Okay. The thing about science is that you need to know when it's right or wrong, and it was so bad science you could even tell whether it was right or wrong. Um, and when you convey a message, um, ideally you want to convey it accurately, but if you make a mistake, you want to know. Okay. And this is something the early scribes were very well aware of, um, in particular the, the Jewish scribes that were um, writing the Torah, uh, the, the early Bible, and, and copying it from one uh, scroll to another, um, wanted to make absolutely certain that they copied it right. And it's actually quite hard to compare one copy with another. There's a lot of letters in it. Um, and so they came up with devices where they could quickly compare one um, manuscript with another to at least see whether an error had been made. Um, things like, what's the middle letter? What's the uh, letter top right? Stuff like that. They developed a series of checks to make, and if, if the manuscript got through those checks, then it was probably accepted as being error-free, and if it didn't get through those checks, then they would go back and probably redo the manuscript. So when you send a message, it's very important that you, can, that you check whether it's right or not, and thus extra ways of um, information are typically put into a message to make those checks. And we call these check or parity digits, um, I'll show you how these work. Um, here are the decimal numbers from 0 to 7, and in black you see the binary um, number, which is equivalent to each of these. So 7 is 111, 5 is 101. If I sent 101, but it was corrupted, and um, the 1 went, say, to a 0, so I sent it as 100, then you might think it was a 4. So we put in an extra bit of information to allow us to see whether there might have been an error in the message. And what we do is you add on an extra digit, 
And that digit um, is added on so that you have an even number of ones. So you have four ones there, two ones up to here, and no ones here. Um, and when you get the message, what you do is you count the number of ones. And if it's even, then it's probably okay. And if it's odd, you know there's a mistake that's been made, and then you do something about it. We'll talk about what you do in a second. Um, so that's the, the question of putting a check digit or parity digit um, as a way of checking that the numbers are right. These things are used everywhere. Um, almost certainly in your pocket, you have something with some check digits in it because they're using credit cards. Um, and what happens in a credit card is that the numbers here have to satisfy a certain check to make sure that they are a valid credit card number. And the thing that's typically used is a thing called the Loon algorithm. Um, and what you do is you go from the right and every other digit you double. So you go 9, 16, 7, 12, and so on. Um, then you add up the digits of the double digits and of the original digits, and you add them all up. And um, if the sum is divisible by 10, then your credit card number is valid. So you might want to check that on your credit cards <laughs> later on. Um, a similar thing is used in bank accounts. Um, so I got this image from the internet, and of course I applied the algorithm to it, and interestingly for this image, it doesn't work. And then I thought, actually, it's probably sensible. If you put a credit card number on the internet, you probably want one that isn't valid after all. So, so that one doesn't work. But uh, um, you might want to check with your thing. Um, and um, that's you know, used widely. OK, so that's a way of checking whether the information has been sent correctly. Um, and when a computer gets a message, it does that check. Uh, and then it does one of three things. Um, the first thing it might do is stop and essentially give you um, some indication that something's gone wrong and then give up. Um, this is the famous blue screen of death, which anyone who's had a computer will be very familiar with. A problem has been detected and Windows has been shut down. There we are. Not very useful, but at least it's better than running with an error. So that's one thing you can stop. Um, more usefully, um, if you, uh, an error has been detected, um, you can ask um, the computer or whatever to repeat the message. Now, that might happen with your credit card. Um, you type in the credit card, the computer comes back to say, invalid credit card number, please try again. And it gives you a few before it freezes your card. Um, another very good example of this is barcodes. So here's a barcode. There's a lot of information on this barcode. I won't go through it in detail. If you want to learn more about it, the transcript that I've produced takes you through what all the different bits of this mean. Um, but the, suffice to say, um, there is a check that's made on all these numbers um, and to check whether it's a valid code or not. So when you run your uh, uh, loaf of bread or whatever past the scanner in a shop, if it beeps, then that means it's a valid credit card number, and if it doesn't beep, what you do, you automatically run it past again until it beeps. Okay? And this is called the Automatic Repeat Request, or ARQ protocol, um, and the internet uses this a lot. If, if information is sent, 
and it doesn't pass the test, then you go back to the internet and you just ask it to send it again. And because it doesn't take very long, that's very, very useful. So that's the um, repeat the message. And of course, we do this ourselves. If we, if we don't understand what someone said, we just say, can you say it again? Um, this is fine, but there are many types of information transmission this won't work for. For example, if you're playing a CD, you can't stop in the middle of the concert and go back and start again. It spoils the music. Um, or if a satellite sent a transmission from Jupiter, um, you can't, when you got the, well, the time it gets to you, the message, you, you can't really ask it to send it again because it's taken so long to send it in the first place. Um, so modern technology um, puts a lot of effort into correcting errors when they happen. An error correction is the science of sending a message in such a way that even if an error has been detected, it can still um, be decoded even if there's a lot of noise. This is the essence of what Shannon was on about in his theory. Um, Shannon was thinking, I'm sure, of how information was transmitted um, in the time he was uh, working, which was you know, during, during the war, um, where the majority of information was sent by Morse code. And what happens with Morse code is uh, if we want to send a letter A, um, you have a code for A, which is didar, dot dash. Um, if you want to send a B, you have another code, which is dar didit, which is um, dash and three dots. Uh, G for Gresham is dar dar dit. Um, and the idea in telephony, uh, telegraphy, um, is to convert letters into codes, and they make the codes as different as possible so that you can distinguish one from the other, even if there's a lot of noise. Um, and this is the essence of correcting an error. When you hear something, even if it's not right, providing it's different from everything else, you can still work out what it is. And Morse code is much more reliable as a way of transmitting information than um, speeches. There's a bit of Morse code um, if you want it. I, I'm a radio amateur for my sins. I had to learn all this stuff and still quite enjoy using it. Um, so um, here's this idea. The idea, if you want to get a message through the uh, noise, you do it in such... You send your characters in such a way that they are as different as possible apart. Okay? They are as different apart as possible. Um, something like this isn't too good. Um, C is... Uh, really quite close to uh, a bracket there. Z is really clo close to 2. Um, um, a, a D is really rather like an O. You know, letters like this are not much use. They're very easy to corrupt. So you, you need to find ways to make them as different as possible. A very good example of this is the NATO phonetic alphabet. So instead of sending A, you say Alpha, B, Bravo, C, Charlie, D, Delta, and so on. Of course, alpha is longer than A, but it's much, much more reliable. No other letter sounds like an alpha. So the error correction, what error correction does is it sends more information that's needed so that you can tell things apart and work out what something is, even if an error has been made. Um, so let me um, show you how this works. Um, here are the numbers 0 to 7. Here are the binary numbers here uh, that represent each of these. 
Um, and in this example, I've added three extra numbers on. Um, and these three extra numbers are designed to make these whole things as different from each other as possible. They are three check digits. What do I mean by different? Um, well, um, the notion of different uh, is due to this guy called Hamming, who was a co-worker of Shannon in the Bell Labs, um, around about the same time, a really dreadful choice of jacket there, but anyway. Um, um, and he came up with an idea of a Hamming distance, which is how different two messages are. And if you have two binary messages, the Hamming distance basically compares them symbol by symbol, and every time a symbol is different, you add one. So if an original signal was 110110, um, and due to the effect of a hairdryer, that zero gets converted to one, then that message differs from that by a Hamming distance of one, and that missed message differs from this one by a Hamming distance of two because in this case, the zero goes to one and one goes to a zero. And that's what Hamming um, came up with. Um, and if we go to our code example, um, these are chosen so that they are all a distance apart of three. They are three apart. Now, the way this works is that if you send these through and I tell you that my channel will be noisy... Um, but not so noisy that the whole signal gets distorted, but noisy enough that one bit gets, um, goes, th uh, there's an error of one bit, which is kind of normal. Um, if things are three or, or more apart, um, if you change um, a symbol by one, it's only one apart from its original, but two apart from everything else, and so you should be able to work out what it was. Um, for example, suppose... I receive this uh, sequence of zeros and ones here. If you look at this, there's nothing on this list which that corresponds to. There's nothing on that list which it corresponds to. They're all different from that. So we know there's some sort of error that's been made. Um, there's an error of one bit. And the question was, which one was the original? Um, and if I take the uh, original symbols, here's my received symbol and look at the distance, the Hamming distance between each of them, um, you see you go 3, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 5, 4, which is the closest. Well, the closest is clearly this one here. Um, and so what the computer does is it simply says, that's the closest. I reckon it's that. I will correct the error. Um, the error's been made here in the second bit. I'll correct that to that, and then that's what I will transmit to you. So it detects the error and it corrects it all in one go. Fantastic. And that's how error correction works. Um, when you're constructing an error correcting code, um, three things have to be done. It has to get through the noise. Um, so it has to have enough digits to get through the noise. Um, you don't want to add so many digits that you can't um, transmit rapidly, so you must allow rapid transmission. And also, you must be able to find errors and decode them quickly. Um, this is what Shannon was thinking about in his theorem. Um, but um, uh, in order to do it, lots of people have thought about this. And then they found that this guy, Everasti Galois, 
at the tender age of 19 in the beginning of the 19th century had worked out how to do it well before CDs had been invented. Um, and Galois' ideas combined with Shannon's theorem have led to modern um, error-correcting technology. Um, here are two very famous examples of this. There's a thing called the Reed-Solomon Code, uh, which was invented in the 1960s, uh, which was firmly based on uh, Galois' ideas of polynomials over finite fields. I won't go into detail. Suffice to say, um, you can look it up in the transcript. Um, and then Hamming himself, in the 1950s, came up with a thing called the Hamming 7-4 code, which allows you to code up seven digits um, with uh, four uh, useful digits and three check digits um, to do with the parity. Again, I, I haven't really got time to go through the detail of these. Um, again, in the transcript, um, there's a lot more to it um, that you can find out, so I'll skip that thing. Um, but the Reed-Solomon code, uh, which goes back to 1960s, is now used everywhere um, and is um, heavily used in CDs. This is a scratch CD. It will get through all those scratches without problems. It will detect the scratch and correct them and play the music. Um, the Voyager uh, probe that went to Saturn um, transmitted that image back, very, very low power. It got all the way from Saturn back to the Earth through all the interference of going through the Earth's atmosphere, was reconstructed, the errors were found and corrected using the Reed-Solomon code. Um, this fantastic bit of basic mathematics is, is being used in pretty well any technology, including this, used for information um, transmission um, and probably will continue to be used for a long time. It's a really very powerful, almost optimal code. Okay. I'm running out of time, so I'll skip data compression and um, get on to genetics. Um, and what I'm, I'm not a geneticist. In fact, I know very little about genetics. But I want to want to show you is how some of the ideas that I've been talking about in mathematics and in technology have been, in a sense, anticipated and massively so by nature in the way that nature conveys information. So. Um, informing an organism, um, a large amount of information needs to be transmitted from the parent to the offspring in, in such a way that the offspring will function as an organism and maybe resemble the parent in some way. Um, Darwin, of course, uh, developed his theory of evolution as to the way things changed and so on. Um, and he believed, uh, as did many others at the same time, that inheritance um, was a sort of blending of the characteristics of the parents. Um, and it wasn't until uh, this guy, Mendel, in the late 1800s, um, made a systematic study of inheritance that it was realised that inheritance actually was a discrete process, rather like digital information, rather than a continuous blending um, like an analogue process. Well, what Mendel did was he studied um, pea plants in the monastery, studied 8,000 of them, um, and he found an, a, a discrete pattern of inheritance with a strong mathematical structure. Um, he, he took a, a green pea and a yellow pea as parents, um, pollinated the, the two together, found they produced yellow peas. They didn't produce greeny-yellow peas or yellowy-greeny peas. They produced yellow peas. Um, he then self-pollinated these ones, 
and found, somewhat to his surprise, that he got three yellow peas and one green one, a ratio of three to one. He then self-pollinated these again, and he found that uh, one of them produced just yellows, two of them produced three to one, and the last one produced all green. So you're seeing here, as I say, this discrete inheritance pattern with a mathematical structure, this three to one. Um, and Mendel basically worked out what was going on. Um, he, he worked out that there were the um, sort of discrete bits to in, um, the inheritance process. Uh, we call these alleles. Um, the, yellow, uh, the yellow pea had two yellows. The green pea had two greens. Um, in the first generation, these kind of got mixed up like this. Um, but the yellow was dominant, so if there was a yellow, it would produce a yellow pea, um, and even if there was a green one. But then when you mix these up, um, um, mathematically it comes out as two yellows, yellow-green, yellow-green, and green-green. That with the two greens gives us the green pea. These gives us the yellow peas, and there's the three to one. And there we have it here. What does this look like? This looks very, very like the process of passing information on digitally from one generation to the next. Now, Mendel kind of worked this out from first principles, but we had to wait for the 1950s to, to see what was really going on. Um, and the heroes of the story are, are Franklin, Watson and Crick, who um, uh, worked out the structure of the DNA molecule this is the plaque on the Eagle Pub in, in Cambridge, which I've often drunk in. Um, and in uh, 1953, uh, instead of publishing Nature, um, they announced their results in the Eagle Pub. Much better place. Probably more FRSs and Fields Medal uh, Nobel Prizes. Anyway, um, so there they are. Um, and there's the DNA molecule. Um, and here's a bit of information about the DNA. Um, DNA uh, molecule has encoded within it um, short bits of it, which we call genes. Um, and the short bits are the digital information that give the code for producing things like proteins or amino acids and stuff like that. Um, the DNA is, is a bit like the, the carrier of these digital bits of information that are used. Um, the chromosomes that we have in our body um, are long strands of, of DNA containing many genes. Um, and a human chromosome has about 50 million base pairs uh, with 1,000 genes. So essentially, we've got sort of like a, giga, a giga, gigabyte, maybe two gigabytes of information coded up within a chromosome. Um, the genes, which are the code, are, are called the genotype. And then that genotype expresses itself as traits in the body through the phenotype um, traits. So this is the kind of way it works. Um, and if we look at it, there's the cell, there's the chromosome, there's the DNA in the chromosome. And the DNA has these sort of ladders, uh, rungs here, which are the base pairs, which are exactly performing a very similar role to the ones and zeros in our codes that we looked at earlier. Um, the main difference between uh, these and the codes that we looked at um, is that we had ones and zeros, so you've got two possibilities, whereas in DNA and RNA, um, you have four possibilities of the different base pairs. Um, second bit of huge mathematics 
is the structure of DNA. It's a spiral. Um, I ask myself the question, is the fact it's a spiral a natural outworking of the pro properties of geometry at a molecular level? There's some very interesting questions to ask there. Um, so down here, we have these base pairs. Um, these uh, look, look like this uh, along the DNA. Um, and the way it works is that um, they divide up into units of three called codons. Um, and the codons are then used to code the amino acids. Um, a codon um, is a unit of three chosen from A, C, G, and U. It's very like an ASCII code. An ASCII code was eight ones and zeros. A codon is three units of A, C, G, and U, but it's still discrete. It's still like a code. Um, a little bit of maths. Um, these play a very similar role um, to the digital codes we had earlier. Um, if you have three of these chosen from four, um, then you have 64 uh, different codes that you can have, um, 64 different codes for 20 amino acids. And because you've got 64 codes and you're trying to code 20 things, you've got very much, you've got the redundancy that we need in order to be able to build in error correction. So information is transmitted with genes in a very, very similar way to the codes that we use in error correction of conveying information. Um, the chance of error, actually, I got this wrong, there should be three more zeros here, is one in 100 million. Um, there's a one in 100 million uh, chance of making an error because of this discrete transmission of information that the genes use. Most of the errors are bad or neutral. We don't really want them. But are good, some are good and lead to evolution. And it's good that that happens. If, if nature's error correction was completely perfect, we wouldn't have evolution and we wouldn't be there, wouldn't be here. Um, so it's good that it's not quite perfect. But it's good that we have it, because otherwise we wouldn't be here at all. So I hope you've enjoyed this journey um, through information, um, going from um, the ideas of binary through to error correction, and then see how this works with, with genetics. In the next lecture, I'm going to show you how information is used in a different way, and we're going to look at how machines learn things and how they use information to do new things by the way they learn. Um, but that's next month. Thank you very much. <laughs>